<laughs> All right, so, um, so let's open our Bibles this morning to uh, Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to read to you a very well-known passage of the Scripture from the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees, and um, it is always their little scheme to trap him into saying something, getting him on record. But uh, as usual, the Lord outwitted them. And so we're going to read verses 15 through 22 from the beloved Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. And so Matthew writes, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. O Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you for the wisdom of our Lord imparted to his people. Even from this ancient manuscript, reveal it anew to our hearts this morning, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so you can see, it's always a a plot. Can you imagine the Pharisees saying to Jesus that... uh, that, um, We know that you're true and you teach of God in truth. What hypocrites. We know they didn't think that. We know they thought he was some kind of a charlatan, some kind of a uh, populist preacher on the scene, had these great crowds following him. They didn't think that at all. They were trying to trap him in his words. And so he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? He took the coin, and of course the coin had the image of Caesar on it. And they said to him, well, it's Caesar's. And he said to them, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. Now, this has always been, forever has been, the essential line of demarcation for governments and kings. What do Christian people owe God? What do they owe their kings and their governors? It was the question in Jesus' time, friends. It's still the question in ours. Indeed, what may Caesar's demand of his subjects? What may governments demand of their citizens? As I said earlier, it seems to me that it's so seldom that the 4th of July falls on Sunday. But I thought to deal with some of the issues that churches and Christians dealt with as far back as even the founding of our country. There were plenty of sermons preached at the time. Make no mistake, the preachers came out when they had to. They came out during the Revolutionary War, and you have to know they came out during the Civil War and had to go on record and had to take sides. Preachers didn't get to walk the middle. Preachers had to take sides, always. There were plenty of sermons preached in that time. I'll refer to at least one of them, probably a couple of them this morning. 
But we might as well hear one sermon right here in our church this morning at the 245th anniversary of our country. I think it's wrong for preachers to pretend that the country's not in trouble. And I'll certainly not suggest that the Word of God and the church have nothing to say on the subject of why the country is in trouble. We're a very unique country, friends. Consider our First Amendment enumerated as one of the first essential natural rights that come from God. The freedom to speak. Who would have thought? The freedom to assemble. The freedom to publish the things that we speak. The freedom of the press and freedom of the religion to worship according to our own conscience. These things are enshrined in our national documents. And they come from a worldview that goes back to the Lord God enshrining these things in the hearts of men. There were many on these shores even long before our founding as a nation that looked to Scripture, friends, for answers to the complex questions of society and human government. So I thought also to deal with some of the the very same issues of personal liberty that we as churches and as citizens of a free country had to wrestle with in the last year or so. And you know what I'm talking about. Just capricious decrees of governors coming out and just cutting off liberties that were blood-bought centuries ago and founded in the annals of Scripture. And so we turn to this very famous exchange between the Pharisees and the Lord Jesus. And there was always, friends, this perpetual struggle between entrenched human authority, or what we might call the establishment, right, and divine authority, between legitimate authority and illegitimate authority, between those who love God and those who do not. And that's always been the tension in the world, and certainly in this nation. And so issues of personal liberty, friends, of personal property, of national identity, of corruption in government, of the power to tax the people, and first and foremost in our American consciousness, the freedom to worship as we choose. And I would say that as Christians, we of all people, friends, we have to find satisfactory doctrinal foundations for our political positions of the moment. Now, there's always a proper hesitancy for a preacher to dabble into political issues of the moment. It's proper to hesitate, to do it carefully, to walk on eggshells even a bit. And why is that? Well, much of politics is fleeting, friends. Much of it's frivolous. Much of it's here today, gone tomorrow. Let's face it. A lot of what you see from your favorite pundits is really just gossip. But the Word of God is established forever, so preachers want to be careful about speaking on political issues. So we must take care not to muddle the temporal with the eternal. Having said that, however, we can see from the passage at hand that Jesus demonstrates a distinct willingness to speak on obvious political objectives. He's perhaps not so hesitant as many preachers are in our day. He is a savvy observer of the political ambition of his detractors. He knows what they're really trying to do. They don't fool him. And his answers are thoughtful and powerful and demonstrative. Can you imagine? Well, let me see the coin. And they gave him the coin. What a setup. He had them right where, they, where he wanted them. And they had no counter to his, his simple logic. Well, this is Caesar's. Give it to Caesar. But don't forget to give to God the things that are God's. And by the way, God also requires some of your money. 
I'm not going to get into that today, but I think we all know that. So we must take care not to muddle these things. They had no counter to his simple logic. His answer was an intellectual thunderbolt to be hurled by his followers from that time until this. It's just as potent to hear it today as it was sitting there in that crowd that day when they tried to publicly ridicule the Lord. To no avail. Friends, never forget this. The power to tax is the power to control. Governments know that. It seems to me people, by and large, forget that. It's not just money. It's the substance that you worked for all that week and all your life, really. And so the Israelites of Jesus' day put tax collectors on the bottom rung of human society. I don't know that they've ever managed to come up any higher. And by the way, so did Jesus. Now you'll notice I put a parenthesis in the notes here. Grace and election notwithstanding, e.g., for example, Matthew and Zacchaeus, who were beloved tax collectors. All right? But remember his very famous statement to that effect. With regard to a brother offended in Matthew 18, he said if the offender did not hear the admonishment of the church, he should be treated very badly, just like you would treat a tax collector. Treat them like a heathen and a tax collector, he said. Now in saying that, he played into the social prejudices of the moment. For the man on the street was feeling particularly oppressed oppressed that time by publican demands for higher and higher taxes. Do you know what publicans are? Well, if you look it up, it'll say a person that owns a pub. But I have to tell you, in in the context of the New Testament, the publican is a Jewish tax collector who works for Rome. And Rome would use indigenous tax collectors to come out to their people, and they became very, very wealthy because they had a large degree of... um, of uh, endorsement by the government to really tax whatever they, whatever they could get. And, and Rome only required so much, so the publican kept what was left over. Pub, Republicans became very wealthy in that time, and so were very much maligned in the popular consciousness. They were not loved. Now, with regard to the political implications of the exchange at hand, we should note that the Pharisees were playing a very disingenuous and hypocritical game. Now, have you ever heard of the political strategy of triangulation? Have you heard of triangulation? I think, and you can check me on this, I should have checked for myself, I think Dick Morris came up with that term, if I'm not mistaken, uh, if memory serves. But triangulation is the temporary use of your own personal enemy to destroy a more immediate personal enemy. In other words, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's triangulation. That's what's being done here. Now, this tactic has earned politicians, ancient and modern, some very strange bedfellows. Be careful of, quote, getting into bed with your enemy. I'm going to give you a modern example. It was politically advantageous a decade or two ago to have your picture taken with the socialite celebrity and billionaire Jeffrey Epstein, right? Everyone ran to get their picture taken and go to Fantasy Island with Jeffrey Epstein. Not so much today. If they found out you took a campaign donation from Jeffrey Epstein, it could ruin your career today. Be careful who you align yourself with, particularly as Christians. And the same is true of the Pharisees' pretended allegiance to Rome here. Remember, the Pharisees are the offspring of the Maccabees, 
Do you remember the Maccabees? The intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. There's a 450-year silent period, if you will. But there's writings from that time. The Catholic Church, and as you're going to see later, Christopher Columbus, included some of those as scripture. They're called apocrypha. It means of unknown origin. But during that period, we have the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which talk about the Jewish revolt against Rome, which was a successful revolt for a time. And the Pharisees are the offspring of these great warriors, the Maccabees, the Hasmonean dynasty, they were called. And the Maccabees were zealous Jews who rose up successfully against the Roman Empire until they were eventually subdued. So there was no love loss, friends, between the Pharisees and Caesar. They were not on his side, though they pretended to be. And if you remember, at the time of Jesus' trial, they said, we have no king but Caesar. But for the moment... In order to bring down our Lord, they're willing to pretend loyalty to the emperor and his local magistrates in order to enlist their aid in opposing the new populist preacher on the block. Friends, they could care less about Jesus' views on taxation. They just wanted for him to live up to his anti-establishment reputation and get him on record for preaching sedition against Rome so that they could soundbite him on a constant loop on CNN denouncing Jewish obligation to Roman taxation. That's what they're trying to do here. Get him on record. Friends, Jesus wasn't playing. Without going into the particulars of what things exactly belong to Caesar and what things belong to God, the Lord's answer was ingeniously satisfying to both government and to God. So for the moment, the Pharisees would have to oppose their Messiah without the help of their heathen overlords, which they truly despised. And the Lord got away, in this instance, with really saying nothing incriminating. Now having said all that, the passage has stood as a perpetual question for Christian people throughout history. Indeed, friends, we have to decide for ourselves anew as a nation what things belong to Caesar And what things belong to God? Have you made your list? Have you taken your inventory? Well, the short answer is this, friends. Everything belongs to God, (laughs) including human government. It's in the hand of God. But so long as the Lord tarries, and so long as men disregard divine interest and lust after their own interests, Christian people will have to answer the question for themselves. The founders of our nation came to this very place and had to make decisions about these very things. You see, friends, Christian liberty, or what we might call First Amendment concerns, is bound up in the way we answer the question. What may government ask of me? How far can they go? Government, friends, the Bible's very clear as a gift from God to order society of men and execute righteousness in the earth. But how far must we let them take us? You may remember some time ago I did a series on First and Second Peter. And I talked about what I called Peter's view of government. And I, and I said he had what I labeled the Petrine balance. Remember that? The Petrine va- balance. In other words, how does, how does P- Peter weigh these two things? Well, First Peter 2.10 says, Obey all, all the ordinances of man. But in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were thrown into prison for preaching in the name of Jesus, they said, you decide, ought we obey you or God? 
So in other words, governments can and do and did go too far then as now. And so it behooves us to discern through the scriptures what the answers to these things are. And friends, Christians came up with the right answer, but it cost them their lives en masse. And purges and pogroms and persecutions rose up for centuries among the Caesars, where they lighted their corridors with human torches of people that would not repent of calling out the name of Jesus and preaching in his name. So Christian liberty, or what we might call First Amendment concerns, is bound up in the way we answer the question, what must I give to God regardless of what government asks of me? We may say taxation. Well, that's a temporal thing. It only has to do with money. It's one to be born with patience and faith. Yes, nobody likes taxes, but the Bible says pay taxes to whom taxes are due. But a learned preacher at the time of our nation's founding saw the usurping of one's liberty as license to usurp another, and then another, and yet another liberty, until nothing was left. And that's how they saw it. And so, in a sermon at Princeton in 1776, a signer of the Declaration of Independence and a great preacher and professor, John Witherspoon, wrote in a sermon these words, The knowledge of God and His truths have from the beginning of the world been chiefly, if not entirely, confined to those parts of the earth where some degree of liberty and political justice were to be seen. And great were the difficulties with which they had to struggle from the imperfections of human society and the unjust decisions of usurped authority. There's not a single instance in history in which civil liberty was lost and religious liberty preserved. Not a single instance in history where civil liberty was lost and religious liberty preserved. I heard Christians say a lot, as long as they don't take away my power to preach the gospel or my, my freedom to preach the gospel, I will not oppose them. This learned man felt it's incremental, and it's always aimed at that end. And I'm here to tell you, it happened in this last year. And it very much offended me. I have to tell you, I was so surprised at the response of the American people. I really was. I was amazed that so many people, like lemmings, just went for the restrictions on personal liberties that were so personal as to cover your face as to tell you, you can't come to church, and you can come in this many numbers, and you can't sing, and you must cover your face, and so little rebellion against that. I was amazed. I really thought last year in June, when I went into Lowe's, when the whole thing was still new, you know, it started, what, April or, or March or something, and it was about 85 degrees and humid, and I'm in the garden center, you know where it's really humid in there? And the girls are wearing, the, the, the workers are wearing the mask. And I thought, how can they even breathe in those things? Now they're finding out, well, we all had to suspect that there's all these new respiratory illnesses that are coming about, particularly with kids, right? Why wouldn't it, right? And I said to one girl, she's sweating, she's got the mask on. You know, you're outside, there's no air conditioning or anything. I said, how long are they going to do this to you guys? Right. Little did I know they were going to do it to all of us very soon. Friends, that was a liberty 
that was so overstepped and overtaken to cover the mouths of a people who have freedom of speech, not to mention freedom of breath. No, I was a little offended by that, but I was amazed that a year later they were still doing it. If therefore we yield up our temporal property, Witherspoon wrote, we at the same time deliver the conscience into bondage. Friends, we're, we were trained as a nation to give up one liberty after the other, and I'm here to tell you that they don't have to take your rights if you're willing to give them away. And guess what? We're willing to give them away as a nation, it seems. It may be important to note that Witherspoon wasn't even born in this country. He was of Scottish descent. He didn't get here till 1768. But he already saw the wisdom in resisting tyranny of this type. His influence here as a notable professor was far-reaching. His students included a president and vice president, 21 senators, 29 representatives, 56 state legislators, and 33 judges, three of whom went on to be Supreme Court justices. Nine of the 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence sat under his teaching, and not the least of which was James Madison himself. So what am I saying? The matter of what's taught in the schools and who does the teaching was and is a most important ingredient in procuring national freedoms or forfeiting them, isn't it? You had men of God teaching at that time at Harvard and Princeton and Yale. And so the interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees begs at least two essential questions. The first would be, does the phrase render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's mean render to Caesar or human government everything and anything that they demand? Friends, my whole lifetime, there is an American that I knew that would have said, oh yeah, you've got to give up everything. It's only now that I see that. I can tell you from history that none of the parties involved in the debate, and the parties were diverse. They had arguments between themselves. But none of them believed that government could take away anything and demand anything, or that Caesar could demand those essential things that are not in his purview to demand, even as a governor appointed by God. Jesus would not and did not relinquish all natural rights and liberties to establish government. He didn't do that. They say, what would Jesus do? He answered back. He at least answered back, right? He went as a sheep to the slaughter because that's why he came. But when it came to the debate, he answered back. He knew it would cost him, but he voiced his, dare we call the word of God, his opinion. The Pharisees were vociferous anti-Roman zealots. Caesar also didn't rule unilaterally. But even he had to consider the decisions of a senate. And certainly the founders of our nation decided also that the Caesar of their day had overstepped his God-given right to tax and to govern the people. So the other question at hand is simply this, whose God is God? There was a time in this nation you would take a poll and everyone would say the God of the Bible. This is not that time. I mean, Catholic and Protestant alike would say the God of the Bible is God. Now, it seems to me that this is where our national troubles arise in our time. This is getting right down to the core of the debate of render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Who is God? Let me let you in on a little historical fact. In the Roman Empire, Caesar was Caesar, and he was also God. At the time of our founding, 
there was a far greater common consensus that there is but one God and everyone knew who he was. Really, even people that didn't practice their religion or, quote, go to church, right? They still knew who God was. And on your way to church, they say, hey, pray for me to God, will you? Do people ever do that to you? Because they know your God is God. They haven't made the leap for themselves yet, but they know. It's interesting. Um, Everyone knew at the time that God was Christ the Lord. Not just some obtuse deity. In fact, there was a cry from some sectors of the Sons of Liberty. Remember them? Samuel Adams's group against King George. And they would say, we will be ruled by no king but Jesus. There were several denominations at the time, some very prominent. And Witherspoon addresses this fact in his sermon. But all of them would say with certainty, even though there were different denominations, right? You had the Episcopal, which was very big, which was really an extension of the Anglican Church, right? And preachers within the Episcopal Church who took the cause of liberty had to leave that church. It cost them something. Their pensions, perhaps, right? So Witherspoon addresses that there's denominational differences, but all of them would say with certainty that the Christ of Scripture is the God of creation and that devotion to him is of paramount importance to a nation that desires his aid and a a divine defense of personal and national liberty. Friends, who's going to defend our liberties? I'm going to tell you who the founders said would defend it. They said God would defend it because they were God-given liberties. But they had to honor God. And it seems our nation has lost its identity in that sense and forfeited the blessings of God. You know, all the blessings, we talk about America being so great, and we talk about material and military power, right? That can all go away without the superintending hand of God blessing it. And the founders knew this in an intimate way, which I hope to bring out with some of the statements from some of them. At the time of the interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, the Roman world was in the throes of emperor worship. Indeed, Caesar and God were one and the same. Now, frankly, I really don't believe most people believed that he was God. But what are you going to do with a guy with all that power that declares it? You know what his nickname was, right? King of Kings. He was the king of kings. That's what they called Nebuchadnezzar. That's what they called great kings in those days, the king of kings. And so this begs the question for us as it did for them. What things do we willingly give up to human governors and what things do we withhold from them? Caesar is God to them. And if you object to that premise, the wrath of that God will come upon you. You know, Francis Schaeffer pointed this out one time. He said, the early Christians were not killed for believing in Jesus. They were killed for believing in Jesus only as God. They had a pantheon, friends. All the gods were invited. But our God doesn't respond to that invitation. You can't have an inscription to our God in the Roman pantheon. He wants no part of it. You can't build him a temple in Rome or Athens or Corinth. He'll have no part of it. And we remember when Paul went to Athens, he saw the the unknown God and he sort of usurped that idea to say, this is the God that I know, the one you don't know. For centuries, Christians did object to the demands of their overlords, and they paid with their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honor, as our founders would have put it, right, and did.
What the founders saw was that either government is strong and the people weak, or the people were strong and the government weak. And that's always the tension of a free nation, friends. Do the people exist to support government, or does government exist to support and defend the individual rights and liberties of its citizens? So what things do belong to government? Well, let's make a list. Does your house, how many think you own your house? And I'm not talking about a mortgage. Talking to those of us that don't have one. Do you own your house? I'll tell you this. Don't pay the taxes and you find out the real owner will come and take his house back. And it doesn't take long. So do you own your house? How about your children? You know, we, we were discussing the other day, and I actually voiced this. I am not certain that we live in the freest country on earth anymore. I'm not certain because I have friends from foreign countries who have much more autonomy over their children than we have in our, in our society. I wonder, do your, do your children belong to government? Or do you have to, do you have to render them to Caesar, should he, should he ask? You know, there were totalitarian governments who demanded that. We need them in the workforce. What about your money? Who does that belong to? How about your savings and your investments? What about your guns? You know, America is the only nation that can ask that question. What about your guns? We have a First Amendment, but we also have a second. And we have a second so we can defend our first. Which things do we have to render? Friends, this isn't speculation anymore. They're voting to just come and take them. This is what we're talking about today. In these last days, we've seen that government claims rights over our very movement from one place to another. Capricious governors demanded that distances between people can be dictated by them right down to feet and inches. How about your ability to show emotion? To smile and to be seen as smiling. Friends, you know, for decades, women's group opposed laws in Muslim countries that demand that women cover their faces. Where are they now? We could use them. Each of these demands were the assumed privileges of elected officials and their self-appointed, quote, experts. And I would point out that the, these measures were far more reaching usurpations of personal liberties than any emperor or despot ever dreamed of. And they knew how to do it to a good people to tell us we were bad citizens if we didn't comply, we were hurting each other. Friends, I'm just going to say, when it comes to the coronavirus, we knew from the beginning who would hurt it. It hurt elderly and people with comorbidities, and I have both. But I was determined to take my chances, and I didn't want to get COVID either. We always knew who needed to be quarantined, yet we all marched into quarantine. People lost their businesses, some in this room. It's quite a usurpation. That's quite a far-reaching hand. You know, the Lord said the laborer is worthy of his wage. He didn't say the laborer's wage is a gift from a friendly government. So Christians, for Christians, there's a more important distinction to consider. Does government rule over your personal devotion to God? You know, America answered the question as, well, yeah, they do. That's what I saw. Can government decide for the professed purpose of national safety to curtail a free person's devotional services that are due only to God. I'm here to say that there was no time in history where such rights were appropriated but by extraordinary force of government. I would also note that there was a never a time in our national history where the rights of a free people were given up so readily and so completely 
it quite astounded me. And I've said, and I'll say again, they don't have to take your rights, if you're willing, to give them up. And now they know, we'll give them up. And if you don't, I'll tell on you. I want to take a quick survey of where America came from, at least from the people that were involved in its founding, right? In its discovery. They didn't invent America, they discovered America, right? You know, there's a, I think, a historically demonstrable theory that Christianity moves west. You notice the whole Eastern world is basically of another culture and religion. Christianity moves west. It moved into Western Europe. That was so-called Christendom in the Middle Ages, right? And from there it moved even further west to a continent that was unknown, to the Western Hemisphere, the Americas. It moved west. Witherspoon gives a nod to that. It's not something you can go to the scriptures and, and prove, but certainly you look at history and Christianity has moved west. And people thought it was of God. And our founders believed that the new world was the new Jerusalem. And they called it that. The pilgrims and Puritans have referred to those, those words numerous times. But let's go back even further. How did Columbus see it? Remember Columbus? He's the guy who had his head cut off publicly in the town square a few weeks ago. He wrote this. You know, they, this was discovered later on, these, these words of Columbus in his so-called apologia, which means defense. He wrote, I've seen and put into study to look into all the scriptures. Cosmography, word we don't even use anymore. Histories, chronicles, philosophy, and other arts which our Lord has opened to understanding. He, he knew that the Lord opened our understanding to the sciences. We didn't just understand them on our own. And he goes on, it became clear to me that it was feasible to navigate from here to the Indies. Well, we know that very famously of Columbus. But he's claiming it was all God's working upon him personally. And so Columbus writes, and he unlocked within me the determination to execute the idea. And so I came to the sovereigns of Castile and Aragon. Those are two defunct um, uh, empires that are part of Spain. And he went to the, very famously to the uh, leaders of certain nations, certainly his, his, uh, his own native Italy he went. He went to Portugal. King John at the time turned him down. You know, very famously he was... Um, uh, supported and patronized by Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. But he said, I went to Castile and I went to Aragon and all those who heard about my enterprise rejected it with laughter scoffing at me. So Columbus got laughed at for saying you could sail around the world. And then he writes this, neither the sciences which I mentioned nor the authoritative citations from them were of any avail. In other words, governments always had trouble following the science. Who doubts that this illumination, he says, was from the Holy Spirit. Well, a lot of people doubted it. You may be doubting it now. I mean, I, he's claiming it, and I don't have to believe it because he's claiming it. But I'll tell you, he did some pretty extraordinary things for a guy who wasn't guided by some superintending authority in the universe. I attest that he, the Holy Spirit, with marvelous rays of light, consoled me through the holy and sacred scriptures, a strong and clear testimony with 44 books of the Old Testament and four Gospels with 23 epistles of those blessed apostles. All right, those numbers are going to be um, uh, different than the numbers you know. There's 39 books of the Old Testament, but he's including certain apocryphal books that were included in the Bible at the time. 
And then he said, in other words, he looked through the whole Old and New Testament, and he found a strong and clear testimony that the blessed, of the blessed apostles encouraging me to proceed, and continually, without ceasing for a moment, they inflamed me with a sense of great urgency. In other words, from the beginning, men who came to these continents, to these shores, claimed that God led them there. You know, there are denominations in this country where people claim all types of things, that God's leading them all types of places. I find this a lot more easy to believe than I do with some of the modern televangelists who tell us they just received a word from God. You know, it's long been believed that Christianity moved westward. Witherspoon noted it in that same sermon that it pleased God to destroy the Spanish Armada to pave the way for the true faith. He wrote that it was ostentatiously and profanely named the Invincible Armada. That's what Philip called his armada, the Invincible Armada. That's like the designer of the Titanic saying, God himself couldn't sink her. Were you thinking of that when when he said it? And then he went on in his sermon to note that the plans of Catholic monarchs to destroy the Reformation came to nothing because of that destruction. He saved the Reformation in England. He also wrote of Cromwell. He was determined to sail to America, but was suddenly detained and left home to win the English Civil War, also a contest against Protestantism in England. You put all these together, you see the sovereign hand of God supporting the Reformation in the land. And the Reformation was moving west. And then he brings it west. He said of the settlers of New England, and this is what he said of our early history, friends. Some of the American settlements, particularly those in New England, were chiefly made by Protestants. And as they carried the knowledge of Christ to the dark places of the earth, friends, he's calling North America the dark continent. That was always Africa's handle, wasn't it? Africa was the dark continent, except for the northern reaches, the Carthage area of the Roman Empire. But he's calling North America the dark continent, and saying that the pilgrims brought the knowledge of Christ there. So they continue themselves in as great degree of purity, of faith, and strictness of practice, or rather a greater degree than is to be found in any Protestant church now in the world. He said that the Puritans had the greatest expression of Christianity in all of history, in his opinion. And then he writes, he is the best friend to American liberty who is most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion. And he said, I do not wish to oppose anybody's religion, but everybody's wickedness. Whoever is an avowed enemy to Christ, I scruple not to call him an enemy to this country. Now we can say that all of that is their own personal opinions. But I'm just trying to point out That the time that we were blessed to become an independent nation, these men believed it came from God and continually offered prayers to that very God to found them in righteousness. George Whitfield, one of the, that said to be the first American celebrity, came from England and preached in New England and all up the East Coast, really. He said, As God can send a nation or people no greater blessing, than to give them faithful, sincere, and upright ministers. So the greatest curse that God can possibly send upon a people in this world is to give them over to blind, unregenerate, carnal, lukewarm, and unskilled guides. In other words, ministers and leaders who do not know God. Samuel Adams had a famous poem, The Divine Source of Liberty. And he wrote, Though our civil joy 
is surely expressed though through hearth and home and church manifest. Yet this too shall be a nation's true test to acknowledge the divine source of liberty. Patrick Henry, remember him? He was a governor of Virginia, eventually went into to Congress. He was a zealous patriot of the time. And he wrote this about the colonies. Three millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. You know, he did this in this short speech that he has. He wrote this whole section on trying to get the people to stand. He knew if they stood against tyranny, they would win. And he said, many of them said, we're not strong enough, or we can't do it now. And he said, well, will you be stronger next week? How about next year? How about in 10 years after you've already lost the chance for liberty? And as a great man of God, he wrote, besides, sir, he's speaking to Congress, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will rise or raise friends to fight our battles for us. They prayed to God for help. Friends, don't forget the French and the Dutch. (laughs) There's no retreat but in submission and slavery, he said. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. Imagine saying the plains of Boston. (laughs) There's no more plains of Boston. (laughs) You're lucky to find a grassy spot. (laughs) And he said, the clanking of our chains may be heard. On the plains of Boston, the war is inevitable. Let it come, he said. I repeat it, sir. Let it come. Friends, these were guys that knew how dangerous it was to say, let it come. They lost a lot. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God, he calls on. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. If that doesn't sound like Joshua, I don't know what does. He delivered that sermon in Richmond St. John Church in 1775, became a very famous rallying call. Let's not forget the words of the first president of my lifetime. When I was born, Dwight D. Eisenhower was president. Even old Dwight said this, politics ought to be the part-time profession of every citizen. Can you imagine that? Everybody ought to run for office. He said, who would protect the rights and privileges of free people? G.K. Chesterton, great Christian, alludes to Alexei de Tocqueville's statement, which said, America is the only nation in the world founded on a creed, and that creed is Christianity. The testimonies go on and on of the devotion of our first settlers and founders. They had their sins, friends. And as students of history, we should make no excuse for sin. They were, however, dedicated to committing themselves as a nation, or a nation to be, to the one and only God of history, whom they recognized and called by name. And of that, friends, there just is no doubt. We've changed our gods. A nation has changed its gods. So I lament with the psalmist, who wrote, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from me. Friends, bondage to Christ is true freedom. The founders knew that. 
and to break away was true slavery, and they knew that also. So I have to ask with Jeremiah, has a nation changed its gods? It's a rhetorical question. He knows that they had. They were worshiping in all the high places, all their various gods. We have our various gods now that we're rather fond of in our nation. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the foundation of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So I would say it's obvious the gods of our nation are strange gods to us. They've changed. It's kind of like at the end of the book of Judges where it says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. We became our own gods. Our lust were our gods, our appetites. It's obvious that the gods of our nation have changed and they are no gods at all. They're not the god of providence. I could have observed by the evidence of history and the testimony of Scripture that maybe it's too late to redeem a wayward nation that has no knowledge of the God who brought them into being. Maybe it's too late. I query that in my mind. I bring that up a lot. Uh, As I look to the Scripture, I'm left with thinking perhaps maybe it is too late. Maybe we've gone too far. You read through the stories of the first and second kings and you see uh, Jehu was a king who was honored God with all of his substance, but he did not see the high places to the other gods destroyed. In other words, they persisted. The king was good, the leader was good, the people had their own thoughts about God. Maybe it's too late. Maybe it's too late to redeem a nation that has no knowledge of God, the God who brought them into being and blessed them with every spiritual and material blessing. And you know, I've never heard a politician who says, let's go back to the old ways. Do you remember when Bob Dole ran for president? And Bob Dole was an old guy at the time. And he had this campaign slogan, and it sunk him. He said, I want to be a bridge to the past. And that was inspiring to people who saw America as declining and saw this guy as a patriot who maybe could bring us back to our, to our roots. And Bill Clinton came out and called himself a bridge to the future, and that's all people cared about, and he was ridiculed. People don't want to look back. They, we've been taught there's no glory in our history. They don't want to look back. J.C. Ryle wrote, All heaven and earth resound with that subtle and delicately balanced truth that the old paths were the best paths after all. You know, you can't improve righteousness. You think you can, but you can't improve righteousness. God determines what it is, and you follow after it in His name, or you don't. They all strive for something new, for something different, for a bridge to the future. And it's this rhetoric of the new and improved that wins the debate over national policy every time. You ever hear politicians, I have a bold new plan. Everybody's so bold and has a new plan, and nothing ever really happens, but it's happening now. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to hold up hope, hold out hope rather, that I, that I find in Scripture that one good man at the helm of a nation can attract the blessing of God as David did in his time. It's also been observed that a righteous church within an idolatrous nation can cause the Lord to relent of his wrath upon that nation. Try to remember, friends, Christianity conquered the Roman Empire without firing a shot. Now, it took some hundreds of years, but it did happen. And you know, the early Christians thought if the Roman Empire 
fell, that would be a good thing and Christianity would flourish. But by the time of Augustine in the 5th century, he thought if Rome fell, Christianity would fall with it. It was, it was, a, it was Christendom at that time. Christianity won the battle by being faithful. And it took some time and great cost and many generations. So I'm going to hold out the hope that a righteous church can still win the attraction of a merciful God and we can attract him to bless us and that he may relent of his wrath upon that nation. Remember, I preached on Jonah recently where that happened, but in Jonah, it's a bad example for me to hope on because the whole nation repented in sackcloth and ashes and without the Lord pouring out his spirit, that's not about to happen. So Jesus prophesied this. He said, there'll be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. But he said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Because of a righteous church within the land, tribulation can be curtailed by the Lord. It's a spiritual principle. And then again, maybe we need just one man in Congress to say what Benjamin Franklin said to them in 1787. And I'll close with this. And I've read this to you before, and you know where I found the quotation? It wasn't in some history book. It was in the Treasury of David of Spurgeon, who went to the, 20, the 127th Psalm that said, except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain who build it. And if you ever use the Treasury of David, he goes through and he shows you what all the pertinent commentary on those verses were by all the people that spoke on them. He'll bring up Calvin, he'll bring up Luther, right? He'll bring up uh, other great saints, Augustine perhaps, or Chrysostom or someone. And in this case, he brought up Benjamin Franklin uh, to tell us what it meant, except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain, who build it? And so I found this in Spurgeon. So when I said, I want to read that again to them on 4th of July, I had to go pull out my Spurgeon commentary and copy it down. And so he writes, that, or he said this, Franklin, he's, I think, 81 years old at the time. He's in Congress. Everyone said he wasn't a Christian. Seems to me he became one in later life, because I don't know how else he could have said this. He said, in the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. Imagine your leaders coming together in a, a, a time of national trauma and danger and praying to the God of Scripture for the deliverance of the nation. And he says, Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. You may not believe that America was a gift of God to the founders, but Franklin believed it. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence in our favor. In other words, we came into being by miracles. The nation came into existence according to the prayers of our founders, according to Franklin. And he went on, he said, to that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity. In other words, they'd won the war, and they're meeting to discuss politics. And he said, to this kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. In other words... What gods would we show faithfulness to? And then he says this, Have we now forgotten this powerful friend? We've been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. 
he writes, And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall proceed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing government by human wisdom and leave it to chance or war or conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in the service. Benjamin Franklin calling on the clergy to lead them in prayers for our nation as the leaders gathered in Congress. So much for their view of the separation of church and state. There was a separation of church and state, friends, but there was no separation of God and state to the founders, certainly not to this founder. Friends, Christians and Christianity were always the motive force behind the founding of this nation. We may plead that though we were blessed with independence from a foreign crown, that we may never plead for independence from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, upon whom we thoroughly depend. And so does our nation, whether they know it or not. But it's the church's commission to tell them. Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you and bless you for a great country, Lord. It was made great by your hand, according to those who founded it and recognized you as the God that you are. May we be renewed in this faith as a national movement, O Lord. May we recognize again the blessings of liberty come only from God, and you are that God. And so in Jesus' name we pray.